Perspective is very important. In fact, every one of you right now have a unique perspective in your life. No one sees the world exactly the same way you do. Your history, your relationships, all of these things shape your point of view. That's what perspective is. It means point of view. Our relationships, our failures, our successes, our interactions with others shape how we view the world. They change our perspective. I don't see the world the same way today as I did a year ago, maybe even a week ago. Things continue to happen in our lives that shape and form our perspective. Carrie and I were talking yesterday, and we were remembering when we first started dating. Her mom lived in a certain house on the lake, and we were remembering details about the house. I was more than 100% sure... Actually, that's not true. That goes against the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago. I was 100, because you can't be more than 100%. So I was 100% sure that I was right in remembering that the garage of the house was on the left side of the house. And she said, no, 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 no. The garage was on the right side of the house. And we uh, talked and discussed as to why we were both right. And then we decided after a while to let Google Maps settle the debate. So we went on Google Maps, and we looked at the house, and we saw that we were kind of both right to make it sound better for me, because I was actually wrong. You see, from my perspective, I was right, though, because what I remember of the house is you would drive into the driveway, you would get out of the car, and as soon as you looked to the house, the left side was the garage. So you would walk into the garage, walk into the house to the right, and that's where the house was. So my perspective told me 100%, absolutely, the garage is on the left side. She remembered looking from the road, not the driveway, the road, and seeing the garage on the right side of the house. From her perspective, it was on the right. Now what happened was evidence showed me that my perspective was limited at best and wrong at worst. And so I had to change my view. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, not about the garage, but have you ever been so right in your mind, so convinced that you're willing to bet all your money, put anything you had on the line and saying, absolutely, 100%, I am right. And then at some point you realize, oh, I was wrong. That happens. Our perspectives change as new information comes into our lives. Our limited perspective in life can do the same thing that it did to me yesterday. It can trick us into believing something so strongly that we will argue and defend our belief and our conviction all the way to the grave if needed. And without the right perspective in life, even with good intentions, we can be guilty of adding grief and trouble and strife and heartache into our own lives, into the lives of others around us. We can think we're actually bringing truth and justice to a situation, but we could be the one bringing lies and oppression if we have the wrong perspective. Right now in our world, we're in, a, in the middle of what appears to be a crisis on many levels. There's a great tension between the police and the black community. There are terrorists killing every week. There are protests. There are attempted military coups. There are killings in response to killings. 
One thing for sure I've noticed this week is that social media has exposed many different perspectives that are causing different people to view the same events and draw different conclusions. Those different perspectives that each of us have are leading people to react in hostile ways toward other people that don't share their perspective. There's violence all over the news, and there's even violence and hostility in our social media. Now, one of the strengths of social media is how quickly news can go around the world instantly. It really is mind-blowing if you consider the way the world operated just 50 years ago. Instantly, almost instantly, we can know what's happening all the way around the world. One of the weaknesses of social media is the temptation to respond immediately without getting all the facts and without gaining the proper perspective. As a Christian, our job is to not respond with hostility. That's never an option for us. But I've seen many people who claim Christ behave shamefully online because they feel angry, they feel threatened, or maybe they're just fearful. Now, if as a Christian our mission is to glorify God with our lives, Christians, we say that we are owned, we belong to God, we are born again, we, we belong to Him, so He is our Lord. If it is our mission indeed to glorify Him with everything, with our life, then we need to make sure we have a Christ-centered perspective. Not just my own unique perspective, but I need to have Christ at the center giving me a proper perspective on life to help me make fewer and fewer and fewer mistakes and to live more and more in a way that would bring glory and honor to Him. So quick question, is Jesus at the center of all of your tweets and all of your Facebook posts? I'm not saying that, okay, everything you post needs to be a Bible verse or a shout-out to Jesus, but everything we do post and say and do needs to be formed and built upon the foundation that Christ is the center of our life. He's the one on whom our lives are built. He's the foundation. It means that our opinions and our convictions are built on the foundation that Jesus is not only Lord of the entire world, but He is also the Lord of our lives. This Apostles' Creed tells us to look up, to see Jesus, and it gives us a Christ-centered perspective. You know, the violence and hostility that we're experiencing in our world today, if we're not careful, we may think this is unique. But this is not something new. This is something that's been happening since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the Apostles' Creed was formed during a time period that faced much hostility, possibly greater than we face today. Intensely hostile times. Today's section, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, speaks to our situation of living in such a time of hostility. Before we go through the Christ perspective, what we gain from that, I want to share a couple of things we get uh, from Jesus as we look at these two scriptures, it says he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. A couple of things we get from this is that Jesus is a one who has special favor. He has a special status. There was a crown of thorns that was given to him just a couple weeks ago. We, we talked about the crucifixion and how Jesus 
was crucified, died, and was buried. And there was a crown of thorns. But now we see that he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of, a God, of the Father. So the crown of thorns is now replaced with this golden crown of glory as he sits in a privileged place with favor and high status with God the Father. To sit at the right hand of a king signifies special privilege and high honor. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, we see a picture of this as well. It says, saying with a loud voice, and this is speaking of Jesus, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, Jesus is ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, so he has this magnificent power and privilege that none other has or will experience. The second thing we notice about Jesus, he has high favor and status, but he also has the Father's ear. When Jesus speaks, the Father pays attention. When Jesus intercedes for us and prays for us, which we'll see in just a few moments that he does do that, the Father listens. He has his ear. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, it says, therefore, it's again, this is speaking of Jesus. It says, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's privileged, he's powerful, he has God the Father's ear. So, what does that mean for us? I mean, he's way up there, and we're down here. We talked a couple weeks ago, I did, about how we wrongly think that God is removed from our suffering, and we feel like, how could God allow something so bad to happen here, and he's safely in heaven somewhere? And we showed how God is not removed from what we're going through now, but he he absorbed the most barbaric moment in human history as he was crucified on the cross. He suffered a greater suffering than we will ever experience no matter what happens. God is not removed. And so as he's ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father, what are the implications for us today? I wonder if you've ever felt abandoned. If someone said they would be there for you and then they weren't there for you. That someone left you right when you needed them most, they left you. I felt that way before. Here we read about Jesus ascending into heaven. This was only 40 days after he resurrected from the dead. So he comes back from the dead, and there's 40 days of ministry, and we don't have everything that he did, but then he leaves them. And I wonder if they felt abandoned. Look with me in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and following. After Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we get a picture of them standing there and watching, and Jesus somehow ascends into the heavenly realm, and he's gone. And they're just sitting there looking like, okay, where'd he go? They just got through 
asking him, hey, Jesus, is, is it now that you're going to you know, bring the kingdom of Israel, bring it back and give it to Israel? And he said he wasn't going to do that yet. And in fact, he even said, well, it's not for you to know the timing of God's plan. And then he said he was going to send them power. He said, I'm going to send you power by way of the Holy Spirit. And he said, it's going to be your job, guys. It's going to be your job to be the witnesses of the risen Lord in your neighborhood to the ends of the earth. And then he leaves. I wonder if they felt abandoned. So the first point is this tonight, about a Christ-centered perspective. Number one, it tells us Jesus will never abandon us. A Christ-centered perspective reminds us over and over and over, Jesus will never abandon you. They may have felt abandoned in the beginning, but they didn't act like abandoned people. Look with me in chapter 24 of Luke, verses 50 through 53. This is the last verses of this gospel. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So we get the same picture from the book of, God, uh, book of Luke as we saw in the book of Acts. And they, those who were left after, after worshiping Jesus, returned to Jerusalem with great what? Joy. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So they didn't go back and think, man, this Jesus really let us down. Something happened at the resurrection where they started to understand more of who this Jesus was. So when they got to this point where Jesus was ascending into heaven, they did not feel abandoned. In fact, it was the opposite. They were worshiping him. They were praising him continually. They understood what God had done for them, that he had conquered death in Jesus, that the resurrection was a promise for everyone who believed in him. They understood that no matter how difficult life was going to be, Jesus had not abandoned them, but he was going to empower them somehow from on high. I need this promise in my life that Jesus will never abandon me. I have a feeling we all need that promise. It gets difficult in life. I'm not the only one who's felt overwhelmed by the responsibilities that are just piled upon us time after time. I'm not the only one who's felt crippled by a grief at the loss of a loved one. I know I'm not the only one here who's felt like giving up because of another failure. Life has a way of adding more and more and more on our plates and making us feel hopeless. But God has an answer for this. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. And even further than that, I will send my Holy Spirit to live inside of you. This Holy Spirit that we receive as Christians, as followers of Christ, is the same Holy Spirit that lived within the Lord Jesus. When we walk by the power of the Spirit, we will not live defeated lives. When we step outside of the Spirit is when we suffer from utter weakness. But in the Spirit, we are strengthened by the Lord. We walk in victory. We walk in peace. Even in the middle of a chaotic world filled with hostility, we can have peace and power and joy. We're not abandoned, but we're the opposite. We're empowered. Look with me. Uh, that's the first point is that Jesus will never... This is my, I want to tell you this is funny. I want to share this with you. I do this sometimes. But I normally preach from an iPad. 
And so when I go to the next page, I swipe it. And I just, did you see me swipe this? No? That's funny, no? It's fine. I just swiped my manuscript and it didn't work, so I have to do this. I'd like it. That's funny. So that's the first point. Jesus will never abandon us. The second point is this. The world is not our promised home. Jesus won't abandon us, and this world that we're experiencing right now is not our promised home. There's a temptation that you and I and everyone faces to view this life as all there is. This is the only chance you have. The Bible shows an attitude that many non-believers have, and they des- it describes this behavior as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. But it's not just non-believers that believe this. Many times we as believers practice this principle, even though we may not say it out loud. How many times have you thought the same thing by having a perspective, well, you know, I only have a few years to really chase after this dream that I've always had. So I need to make a decision to move or to change careers or to to do whatever it is because time's running out. For me, to get the most out of life, I need to act now. I want to challenge and and ask, is that a Christ-centered perspective? Not necessarily. I think there are ways that a Christ-centered perspective could have implications for that to where we realize there's only so much we have time to do here, so let's get going. But the other side of it is looking for fulfillment for myself is not a Christ-centered perspective. The world that we're in right now is not the promised land. It's not the promised home that we're designed to find our fulfillment in totally. But we're designed for something much greater than finding fulfillment in this broken world. You and I are designed, as well as every person created in the image of God, which is every person, we are designed initially to find our ultimate fulfillment in God, to find this divine connection with the one who created us. And Jesus gives us that opportunity. Look with me in John chapter 17, verses 13 and following. This is Jesus praying, and he says, but, but now I come to you, and he's praying to the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, speaking of his disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but I do ask you to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify or set them apart. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word, Lord, is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So just like Jesus, we live in the world. He lives in the same world that you and I live in. He lived in the same world. But we are not of the world. There's a distinction here. Jesus lived in and he loved the world, but he wasn't distracted from his mission of justice, rescue, and love. He didn't seek fulfillment and pleasure from the world, but he used every ounce of his life to give to serve, to 
to bring the kingdom of God into the lives of those around him. As Christians also, we are committed to the world. And we're committed to the world because Jesus calls us to be committed. He's shown us how committed he was to this world by having Jesus die, by showing us that there's work to be done here. But the world is not an end of itself. It's not the promised land. It's not our home. There's something greater. This is temporary. There should also, on the other side of things, be a, a sober understanding among Christians. This might not sound correct, but I want you to listen for the next few minutes or few moments. There needs to be a sober understanding that there's going to be violence. We live in a world where there's going to be injustice. There's going to be death in this world and disease. And it's going to be this way until the Lord returns. But that sober understanding and realization should never lead us to remove ourselves from the issues and the dangers of the world. It should do the opposite. It should drive us and motivate us to be even more bold to bring relief and justice to reality. So on one hand, it shouldn't shock us that the world which crucified its creator is still violently spewing hostility today. This morning, it shouldn't shock us that three more police officers were shot in Baton Rouge. At last I saw before. It shouldn't shock us that terrorists are plotting more and more attacks. Should we grieve with it? Absolutely. But this is the broken world in which we live. The world is filled with evil. But we just saw that Jesus... The Lord was praying for us to be protected from the evil one. So we are to live with hope in this broken world, with hope that God will use us, his church, to bring peace, hope, and love into our own lives first. And then with what we've been given, we will bring that to those around us. We will learn to live with a Christ-centered perspective, And then all the more we will stand out in a dark, violent, and hostile world because we will be people that shine with love and light and grace and peace, the opposite of everything we see on the news. We can do this because Jesus did not abandon us, but instead he has empowered us with his Holy Spirit. The third point is this. Jesus is all we need. A Christ-centered perspective tells us that Jesus will never abandon us. The world is not our promised home. This is never going to be what we hope it will be, even though hopefully we will take steps toward that and see justice and reality. This is not our home. But Jesus is all we need is the third thing that a Christ-centered perspective tells us. At times when everything seems hopeless in your life, when we look around and we can't find something to be thankful to God for, we realize that a Christ-centered perspective reminds us that we have everything we need in Christ. What we have in Him, just Him alone, is the love of the Creator. 
We have life eternal. We have peace with God. We have salvation for sin. We have victory over death. Everything that we need, we have in Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. And again, we see this phrase in this scripture as well as others, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Have you ever heard the phrase that someone was too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good? Where people hyper-spiritualize things to the point where they remove themselves or they disengage from the culture or the world around them? That's, that's not what we're talking about here when we say that we set our minds on things above. You set your minds on the things above so that you can figure out how to have Christ's perspective to be filled with the Spirit, and to enter into this broken world with the power of God's Holy Spirit within you. That's what a a Christ perspective gives to us. And as baptized Christians, when we are baptized, this baptism is a, a death of our old self. So we are already dead to the world when we are baptized. We experience death to the world, so we no longer seek to find our value in the broken world that's not our home. We no longer seek to find our worth from the world which we live. But we've died to the world, and in doing so, we're raised to a new life with Christ. And so our minds should be toward Him. We should be looking up to Jesus, where He is, seated at the right hand of God in power. If then you've been raised with Christ, He says, don't live according to the old life that's dead and gone, but realize that you're a child of God, no longer a slave to the world and sin. Don't settle for the false hopes that one day there's going to be utopia. Anybody see the movie Zootopia? It's a really good movie, by the way. I love the movie, so I'm not picking on it at all. It's a great movie, but we're never going to have total peace until Christ brings it and ushers it in. So we don't settle for the false hope that the world tells for us, but we look up to the true hope that Christ gives us. That no matter how bad this gets right here, there is victory over death and over sin. We are empowered by God to be agents of change here and now. Jesus is all we need. You know, it was Jesus who showed us how to do this. Look up. What does it mean to look up to Jesus? Just walk around like I'm playing Pokemon all day and run into stuff? You know how people run into stuff? That's a little joke, right? Jack liked it. So should we just look up? What does it mean to look up to Jesus? Well, it means that we're to be focusing on Him looking to Him, worshiping Him, reading His Word, finding out what it is that Jesus loves, and telling our hearts, I love that too. Finding out what it is that Jesus hates and saying, I hate that too. I hate that sin and it's all within me. And I'm repenting of it. And I'm asking God to give me a Christ-centered perspective. Jesus showed us how to look up to the Father. In John chapter 17, verse 1, it's written, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This chapter, which I quoted earlier, is the whole chapter, John 17, is known as the high priestly prayer. And so Jesus is praying to the Father, for his disciples, the ones that are, uh, that are going to be left behind after he ascends to heaven. 
but he also prays not just for them, but he prays for you and for me because he prays for all of those who are going to believe because of these witnesses. Jesus prayed for us. And he didn't pray for them to be removed from the world. He didn't say, God, give them a colony over here so that they can have their own subset culture with their own markets and their own utopic experience. He didn't pray for them to be removed from the world. But he prayed something different. He said, Father, protect them from the evil one. Strengthen them. He prayed for them. He said, Father, give them unity. The church, give the believers unity the way you, you God, and me, son, the way we have unity. Give them that type of unity. And the only way for us to experience that unity is for us to crucify and to lay down and to sacrifice our unique perspectives and seek a Christ-centered perspective for our lives. I can't look at the world today and live faithfully to Jesus if my first inclination is to view the world as a white male ages 35 to 44. My perspective has to be a Christian, Christ-centered perspective. If I'm going to be of any earthly good, my perspective on everything needs to be shaped and formed by this Christ-centered perspective. We look up to the ascended Lord who is seated at the powerful right hand of God, and what we do when we see him on that throne is we see something really special. We see our future glory. We see that one day that's going to be us. Not seated at the right hand of God as the exalted one, that's Jesus, but resurrected in glory, that one day we will be with him. This Lord that is our King, our Messiah, is interceding on our behalf and praying for us right now in this moment. And he's not interceding for us to have a nice, comfortable life. He's saying, God, give them unity. Give them the kind of unity that only you and I have. Give them ethnic and racial unity because their identity is not found in their ethnicity, but their, their identity is found in me. Give them economic unity so that the poor churches and the rich churches are a reality. But there is one church. Give them unity by your Holy Spirit, God, so that when the world sees them, they realize there is something special and they look up and they praise you. When we look up to Jesus, we see the future and it empowers us to live now with a Jesus is already king perspective. Looking up and, and reminding that Jesus is who he is reminds us that when trials and heartaches come, there's a perspective that God wants us to live with. With a Christ-centered perspective, this is what I'll close with. With a Christ-centered perspective, we are free to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. We are empowered to be agents of change and justice in the world. We are released from the fear of death. No longer do we have to worry about death because we know the resurrection is coming. 
with a Christ-centered perspective, we don't want to disengage from the world, but we're motivated to serve. And we're motivated to the point of serving and not to the point of wanting to be served. That's such a battle for me. A daily battle to want to serve instead of wanting others to bring fulfillment to me. With a Christ-centered perspective, we see a world hurting and in desperate need of healing. But we also see victory. And we see the promise of God that our future in the new heaven and new earth, our future is with this Lord himself. This is a promise of God. And a Christ-centered perspective tells us that God never breaks his promises. I want to challenge you this week with everything you do. Ask this question. Is this my perspective? Is this what I'm bringing to the table that may add some intrinsic value? Or is this a Christ-centered perspective? Is this going to bring kingdom power and healing and grace and all the fruits of the Spirit? When you look up and see Jesus, he will give you a Christ-centered perspective. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we look up to you at this moment. This world is broken beyond our repair, but you have entered into our brokenness and brought healing we so desperately need. Keep our eyes focused on you so that our perspective won't limit our vision and cause us to be part of the problem in the world. But give us a Christ-centered perspective so that everything we say and do is built upon your promise to reconcile the world to you in your perfect time. Thank you for your powerful Holy Spirit. May we live by his power today and every day. May we live for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.